Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. When it comes to singers, Dolly Parton, she's just as good as it gets. Jolene, 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 Jolene. She's been through it all, and she knows just when to summon the right emotion. I've written some of the saddest songs when I was at my happiest. It's Bullseye. Coming up, Dolly Parton. She'll talk about what it was like growing up poor in the Great Smoky Mountains as the fourth of 12 children. People say, well, we, you didn't have toys. What would you play with? I said, we played with each other. We found tons of stuff to do. And how her upbringing has influenced her career over the last four decades. Then I'll talk with Steve Coogan. The trip movies... Night at the Museum, 24-Hour Party People, and an Academy Award nomination for screenwriting on Philomena. His resume is long and varied, but one thing has been constant, Alan Partridge. The character started as a sort of know-nothing sports broadcaster. You know, they always say a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. That was Alexander Pope said that, and Alan Partridge is, has got lots of little knowledge, <laughs> if that makes sense. Steve Coogan has now spent 20 years portraying it, off and on. Like a relative that um, you're very fond of, but you only want to see at Christmas and holidays. You don't want to live with them. He's just announced Partridge is on his way back soon to the BBC. Then finally, I'll tell you about a very surprising thing inside the National Postal Museum. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Dolly Parton started her life as one of 12 siblings in a one-room house in the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee. Over her 50-plus year career, she sold more than 100 million albums, built four theme parks, starred in movies, and written for Broadway, not to mention started a charity empire that sent now more than 40 million books to children. There's something distinctly American about her combination of megawatt stardom and down-home charm, and it's all anchored in a truly spectacular talent. Here she is singing one of her greatest hits, Jolene. Jolene, 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 I'm begging of you, please don't take my... Dolly Parton and I spoke in 2012. At the time, she just put out a book called Dream More. Since then, she's released two more full-length albums. The latest is called Pure and Simple. She's done three TV specials, and you can hear her guest appearance on the upcoming Kesha record. That's out next month. She also just got nominated for an Emmy. It's really a pleasure to have you on the show, Miss Parton. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much. That took me way back there with Jolene. I've been around a long time, ain't I? Long enough to write a book. (laughs) The other day I was at a thrift store, and I bought a Carter Family CD. And I was listening to it in my car. And the thing that struck me about it was, you know, these these songs recorded, a, a lot of them in the, in the 50s, 40s, 50s, um, was how intensely sad they were. How this music was about, you know, there were, there were songs about heaven, but heaven really just felt like a sort of a respite <laughs> from, 
from the world. And I, I wonder if you if you grew up uh, listening to music like that. I not only grew up listening to it, I grew up hearing it from my mother and singing it myself and writing that kind of stuff. I mean, I've written some of the saddest songs. Some of them say they're plum pitiful, as I always like to say. But that's just the way it is in in the country because a lot of those stories are true and it's just kind of embedded in your you know, in your soul somehow, all those old songs and stories, they say that's how people used to carry the news about all those great old stories before the newspapers and all they'd write about the tragedies in their areas. So I think people really feel like it's happened to them or their family. But I love that old stuff. I've written some of the saddest songs when I was at my happiest. I wonder, you know, I I grew up in the city in the 80s, and um, I, I feel like I don't, I don't really understand what it means to have grown up in a family of twelve in, uh, you know, a one-room house in the mountains. Um, what is it that someone like me maybe doesn't understand at first blush about that life? Well, I think when you grow up in the mountains like that, now I was born in a one-room house. As our family started to expand, we did have a couple more rooms. <laughs> you know, we had, we always said we had three rooms and a and a path, where some have three rooms and a bath. We had the outdoor toilet, <laughs> and we had running water when we'd run and get it, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, it was just the way of life back in the mountains, not just us, but all all the people that had big families are just poor, and you just make do. You don't think about it. And I always tell, you know, if people say, well, how did you have any privacy? I said, well, my favorite story is I said, well, we— had a pan of water, and then we'd had a little curtain that we'd pull, and uh, we would wash up as far as possible, and then we'd wash down as far as possible, and then when the boys cleared the room, we washed possible. So that's kind of of how I sum it up. (laughs) Was the poverty in your family ever such that that you were afraid? Yes. I remember... We were more afraid because we sensed fear in Mama. Mama always used to get real depressed in the fall of the year, and it was years later that we realized it. But she was just afraid we weren't going to make it through the winter with those old cold houses and all those kids, and if we was going to have enough food or if somebody was going to die from pneumonia or, or whatever. So, um, yeah, I remember hearing Mom and Daddy talking and feeling that heaviness, that sadness of thinking— Wonder if we are going to make it through the winter. But we did. My daddy was a hard worker. He couldn't read and write. And that's one of the reasons I had wanted to start the Imagination Library and uh, to where we give free books to children is because so many mountain people, country people, don't get an education. And um, But that don't mean they're not smart. My daddy was smart enough to provide for that big house full of young'uns and do all right by us. I want to play a little bit of a song you wrote about your grandfather. Um, this song's called Daddy Was an Old Time Preacher Man. Yeah. Daddy was an old time preacher man. He preached the word of God throughout the land. He preached a plain a child could understand. Yes, Daddy was an old time preacher man. He told the people of the need to pray He talked about God's wrath and judgment day He preached about that great eternity And he preached 
heart that you could feel the heat. Daddy was an old-time preacher man, and Leona would get up to testify, as we'd sing in the sweet by and by. Then we'd sing, I'm on my way to Canaan's land. Yes, Daddy was an old-time preacher man. Was music part of your grandfather's uh, services in preaching? Oh, absolutely. We got the music from my grandpa, from my mother's side of the family. That was my mom's uh, dad. And we were allowed to sing in church. We'd take our guitar, you know, to church, and we'd sing as, you know, the sisters. We used to go around to a lot of churches, different churches, and sing. But my grandpa played guitar. He played the piano. My mama played the guitar. And uh, my aunts and uncles, you know, so especially on mama's side of the family. So music was a big part of it. And my grandpa was a major influence in our lives. Did you ever listen to music on the radio? Oh, yeah. But uh, we didn't have, uh, you know, back in the early days, we weren't allowed to use the radio that much. Back in the very early days, we didn't have electricity, and we had a battery radio, and so that only got played for, like, some serious news or trying to get the Grand Ole Opry on Saturday night when it whistled in and out. But, um, but yeah, we, we listened to the radio, but we had more stuff to do than just to listen to the radio, and we didn't want to use up electricity either. My daddy was stingy on top of uh, being a good provider. <laughs> He didn't want us to leave any lights on any longer than we had to or play the radio or any of that stuff, no more than we had to. And it was mostly for, for the news and stuff like that. Let's hear a little bit of you singing a song about um, growing up in Tennessee. This is My Tennessee Mountain Home. Sitting on the front porch on a summer afternoon In a straight-back chair on two legs Leaned against the wall Watched the kids playing With June bugs on a string And chased the glowing fireflies When evening shadows fall In my Tennessee mountain home Life is as peaceful as a baby's side It's such a beautiful song. What, oh, thank you. That's a fun song to sing. I always get a kick out of that. That takes me right back home. When you think about growing up, what are the what are the fondest memories that you think of? Well, things like that. Just uh, us just being part of the woods and the trees and the fun things we'd do outside. And uh, just we loved our animals and we always got excited when we was going to get new baby chicks and new baby ducks or new calves were being born, you know, or piglets. And, you know, it's like we... We were part of all that. We were part of the woods and the trees and, and nature. And we people say, well, we, you didn't have toys. What would you play with? I said, we played with each other. We found tons of stuff to do. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Dolly Parton. She and I spoke in 2012. Her latest album, Pure and Simple, came out last year. You know, your book is called Dream More, and there's a, a little 
part of it where you talk about having dreams and being hesitant to share them because when you share big dreams, you you expose yourself to the possibility that you won't achieve them. And I wonder when you started to dream of leaving where you grew up and if you told anyone about it at the time. Yeah, I remember starting dreaming that when I was still in grade school and I told everybody. <laughs> I just <laughs> believed that I was going to do it. I kept saying I'm going to I'm going to move to Nashville when I when I get out of school and uh even on my graduation night I mentioned in in the Dream More book about when I when they had asked different the kids, you know, when we were doing our talk or whatever, our little farewell. Uh, they were asking what we were doing. The kids were saying, well, I'm going to be going to so-and-so to college or I'm getting married and moving to so-and-so. And came to me and I said, well, I'm going to move to Nashville because I'm going to be a country music star. And then everybody laughed. And I was so embarrassed because, because I, was de- I, mean, I was definite in that. And I thought, why are they laughing? And it was only years later that I, I realized that it, they weren't making fun. They just you know, wasn't used to people dreaming that big so i i knew um i don't even know how how long it was when i believed i was going to do something more i was still like i say in grammar school but um i totally was prepping for it and saving for it and packing for it you know the years that i was in high school because i knew i couldn't leave home till i was 18 my daddy would have sent a posse after me <laughs> i thought well there's no reason to go till after i'm 18 and so that's exactly what i did did you I, know people who were professional entertainers or even just people who had left home and become successes no well actually i did know uh, carl and pearl butler who had uh, used to sing on the uh, Kaz Walker show also, the show that I started on years ago. And they had kind of started out, and they had moved on to Nashville, and they had had a, a couple of hits uh, that Don't Let Me Cross Over and If Teardrops Were Pennies and Heartaches Were Gold. So uh, they were they were doing good, so I knew about them. But, it, but, but they hadn't done that when I—they hadn't done that by the time when I had already started dreaming. That was later— you know, that they did that and moved to Nashville and did did well. But I just wanted to—I didn't know wh- what all I was going to do. My uncle and I used—my Uncle Bill and I used to go to Nashville when I was in school, you know, grade school and high school. Uh, anytime we could bum enough or save enough money to get a tank of gas, we'd go to Nashville, take songs that we'd written or, and that I'd written or he'd written or we'd written together, and we'd sleep in the car, and I'd clean up. I'd wash my hair in the service station of uh, bathrooms and cold water and put my makeup on in the in the mirrors on the side of the car or in the so you just do what you do uh, to get those dreams going. What did the rest of your family think about all of this? Well, Mama was so busy with all the kids, and my daddy would have never let me done anything at all if it hadn't been with family. And Mama helped a lot. Daddy didn't want me to do none of that because he was afraid something was going to happen to us girls. You know, he's he. It's not that he didn't trust us; he just didn't trust men, or you know, people out there. So if it hadn't been for Mama's brother and Mama covering for me and saying, "Well, it's just Bill. It's Uncle Bill." And so that that helped a lot. But Daddy was not keen on that idea. In fact, it was a long time before my Daddy was comfortable 
with me being a star. It was only when I decided I was going to get married. He was fine after I married two years later after I moved <laughs> to Nashville. But he couldn't find no comfort till he knew I was safe somewhere. But Mama, she just believed in me, or she just believed me. And she just thought, well, you know, she's going to do it. She's going to do it because she said she's going to do it. And so, sure enough, she's right, and I did it. I, I read that you met your husband on the first day that you were in Nashville. I did, and I met him at a wishy-washy laundromat on Wedgwood Avenue, and um, or a little laundromat. And I'd, I'd ta- I had taken dirty clothes from from home in my haste to get there because I graduated on a Friday night, I guess, and got there on Saturday. And he was just out riding around and um, saw me, and he said, "That's the girl for me." That's what he told me later and two years later we was married now when when he saw you and said that you were the girl for him what did you think i well i was just flirting i was always a big flirt and still am so i was just country girl and i said he said something like you're gonna get sunburned out here and i said oh what's it to you you know or something to that effect and we just started talking and anyway when he told me uh what he really said, because we, I was babysitting at that time. So after I got my laundry, uh, he would. We went back up to the place where I was staying, and then he would come over every day after work and sit at the bottom of the staircase. The folks lived upstairs that I was babysitting for, and where I was staying. And uh, so he would stay there. So the, he told me on the first day off. My first day off, that he was going to take me to eat, and he took me over to his mama's house. We walked right into his mama's and daddy's house, and it was supper time. I thought he was taking me out to eat. And uh, he said, this is the girl I'm going to marry. Fix her a plate. And that's when I really thought, well, how dare you? Who do you think you are? I didn't say it. <laughs> but I thought it. And sure enough, like I say, two years later, we were married. So we got married in 66. We've been married ever since. One of the really amazing things to me about your career is that you are and and always have been a, a spectacularly beautiful singer and, a, if you'll forgive me for saying it, a really beautiful woman. Oh, well, thank and, you. <laughs> and I think it would have been um, easy for you to let those facts guide your career rather than guiding your career yourself. Um, rather than dedicating yourself to to recording songs that you'd written and to um, building a business around yourself, um, you could have just been, you know, another pop star that, you know, sang on records that other people were driving. And um, I wonder if that was always what you wanted or if it was, if there was a time when you decided to press yourself rather than pop star Dolly Parton? Well, I always wanted to be myself. I always wanted to uh, to do what I felt was right for me, but I knew I had to play certain games. I never compromised my principles and my morals and, and what I considered my values uh, to get anywhere. I never slept with anybody to get to any from point A to point B. If I did... If I slept with somebody, it's because I wanted to, not because I was trying to get something out of somebody. But, you know, it was like one of those things to where I knew who I was. I knew um, what my talent was, and I knew that eventually I'd be able to do 
what I wanted to do. But you have to kind of roll with the punches. You kind of have to compromise uh, to a degree to get done what you need to get done. But I was very happy, you know, when I got to be able to start making choices of my own and choosing things of my own. And I've I've chosen stuff that some would say might not be good or they didn't like that or whatever but I wouldn't change a thing because I needed to try stuff and it's just like when I did my my bluegrass album of the grass is blue and people loved it so well it didn't make any money but it was critically acclaimed and it was like uh, I said then well I had to get rich in order to sing like I was poor again so it's <laughs> almost like they say a, a a rich man can't sing the blues. I disagree with that because I've still got all of that heart and soul and that gut and that Smoky Mountain DNA. And I remember mom and daddy and my life and every feeling I ever had, every heartbreak I've ever had. And that's why I can still write in that way. I think if, uh, you know, so I just knew that eventually I'd get to where I can do as I do as I please, and that's pretty much what I do. I still, you still always being in business, you have to, like I say, you have to compromise and you have to be able to bend and sway, but you don't have to bend so far you break. You've got more of my interview with Dolly Parton after a break. She'll tell me about how she manages to keep her family close, even when she and her siblings are, you know, living pretty different lives. I mean, I think there's really only one person who you could say lives a Dolly Parton-esque life. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from the AT&T original series, Mr. Mercedes, based on Stephen King's best-selling novel. A demented serial killer taunts a retired police detective, and now the ex-cop must bring the killer to justice before he can strike again. Mr. Mercedes premieres August 9th at 8 p.m. Eastern and Pacific on Audience. Watch on DirecTV Channel 239 or stream on DirecTV Now. Go to att.net slash Mr. Mercedes for more information. Yo, 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 everybody. It's Stretch Armstrong. And my name is Bobito Garcia, a.k.a. Cool Bob Love. If you love this podcast you were listening to, you should check out our new show, What's Good with Stretch and Bobito. This is not your average interview show. We're going to be telling stories that you're not going to hear anywhere else. Find it on Apple Podcasts, the NPR One app, or however you find your podcast. It's What's Good. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest this week is Dolly Parton. I spoke with her in 2012. At the time, she just put out a book called Dream More. You were on uh, Porter Wagner's television show, which was the biggest country music TV show for, if I remember correctly, seven years um, mm-hmm. in the in the sixties and I, I think into the early seventies. Um, when you decided to leave that show to be a solo performer, you'd also had some big duet hits with Porter Wagner. Um, why did you decide to do that, and, and was it hard? Oh well. Yes, it was very, very, very hard. And I decided to do it because I knew that I didn't want to be just part of somebody else's show. I wanted to be my own star. I wanted to have my own band. I wanted to, you know, to make my own decisions. I didn't want to just be part of something else. I wanted to be part of all that God had for me out there. And I didn't feel like I had 
Uh, I was felt like I was running in place, and Porter and I fought like cats and dogs. We were both so stubborn and so headstrong about who we were and what you know what we wanted, and we just bashed heads all the time because I wanted to do my music a certain way. He wanted me to do my music a certain way, and so we really just clashed a lot. And he was always say, "Well, it's my show," and I said, "Yes, you're right." All the more reason I need my own. So it was very, very hard. We, because um, there was a part of me that loved Porter, and there was a part of me that just despised him, and I'm sure he felt the same about me. But that's really uh, when I wanted to leave the show. He made it very hard for me by. Uh, not wanting me to go and talking too loud and trying to scare me, and that didn't work. And so I thought, well, i got to get away from here, and I've got to do something. He's not listening to me. And that's what inspired me to go home and write uh, I Will Always Love You because I said, do what you do best. Write a song. Write your feelings in a song. I wrote it and took it back to Porter's office, and uh, I said, sit down. i got something I want to sing for you. And I sang it, and he started, tears started rolling down his face, and he said, okay, you can leave, but... Only if I can produce that song. So he did produce uh, the record of I Will Always Love You, and that was my leaving song. And uh, and so I went, and look how successful that's been. That was a song that came straight from the heart. I know that you have um, brothers and sisters who are musicians as well, and I've actually heard you say that there were other people in your family who were more talented than you were. Um, And I wonder if having that in your family makes you think about the way that um, that chance and sacrifice combined have helped push your career along when um, you know other people who are so close to you haven't had the same thing happen with them? I think about that a lot. In fact, I, I talk a lot about that, or I talk some about that in the uh, Dream More uh, book about how I have a, a guilt. I have guilt feelings a lot about my success just because so many of my family is so talented but didn't seem to get all the same breaks. And who knows what, why that happens. You just have to hope for the best, and I still hope that they're you know, going to do good. I know a lot of them work at, at Dollywood now in the show, and we're putting together a new show. But, you know, it's like I couldn't make them a star. I couldn't keep them from being a star. Everybody's kind of got to hustle and bustle. You know, you just got to work all the time. You can't lose momentum. It's hard to know. It's hard to say because uh, a lot of people you know, want the success or they want the stardom, but they're not either able to or willing to go that far from home or to be away from family or they make choices to do other stuff. But um, like you said, or if it's just chance, like you said, whether it's chance or um, in our luck or whatever. And I don't know. It's I, you, you just don't know. And the older I get, the more I look back and I think, well, how did I do all this? And why was you know I the one that got to do so much of it? And I don't know the answer to those questions, except that I know I never stopped working. I still ain't stopped, and I ain't stopping until I keel over somewhere. <laughs> You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Dolly Parton. 
was having children of your own one of the things that you had to sacrifice to have this career? To be honest with you, it was. Because if I'd have had children, I wouldn't be here probably talking to you right now. Because I probably would have been a good mother, like uh, most of the women in my family are. And, and my dad was like a great dad. And we're very devoted to our children. And if I'd have had kids... Um, I mean, I put it on hold, you know, for a while. We were just trying not to have kids then, thinking that we were going to have kids. And by the time it got to be that time, then uh, we didn't have kids. But now we're glad we didn't because uh, now we have each other, my husband and I, and we've got all these nieces and nephews and brothers and sisters and uh, all these relatives with their kids that we, you know, we try to help with their schooling or anything else that we can and we babysit a lot. We take them places. We do stuff with them. But at least we can, when we get sick of them, we can send them home and say, love you. Call mom. <laughs> See you later. But it's those kinds of sacrifices that you do have to make. But I don't regret it. I do not regret any decisions that I've made because to change one thing would be to change everything. And we can't have that now, can we? I want to play one last song. Um, this comes, I, I think, from your television show, The Dolly Show, um, although I have to say I found it on the Internet and it wasn't labeled. Um, this is you and about 10 members of your direct family singing a song called In the Sweet By and By. Oh, yeah. In the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. such a beautiful song. What does it well, make you think of? <laughs> it makes my heart heavy, and I'm not, I've got tears in my eyes, because that was a special I did. Um, I think it was one of the specials, and I had my family on. Mom and Daddy was, I think, probably in that group of people. Yeah, they're sitting right next to you. Several of my brothers and sisters, and um, so that song we used to always sing, my sisters and I used to sing that in church as special singing, but we also used to sing that as congregational singing too. So it makes me think of mom and daddy and all my brothers and sisters and my grandpa, Jake, it's been dead for years now. Mom and dad's been gone for quite a while. So that uh, is kind of touching to me. Well, Miss Parton, I, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on our show. It was It was really... It was really a joy to get to talk to you. Well, thank you so much, and I uh, hope you get a copy of my new book. Dolly Parton from 2012. Find her latest album, Pure and Simple, wherever you get music now. Also, her Christmas special, Dolly Parton's Christmas of Many Colors, was just nominated for an Emmy. She was also recently inducted into the Happiness Hall of Fame, so congratulations to her for that. We're all very happy for you, Dolly. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week, we're replaying a couple of our favorite interviews. Next up, we've got Steve Coogan. He and I spoke in 2014. Once upon a time, Steve Coogan was an impressionist, a 
brilliant one. I mean, he still is. Then he became a character comic, then one of the most beloved comic actors in the UK, and now, 20 years later, he has an Academy Award nomination for screenwriting. He got that for the movie Philomena, which he also starred in. As you can imagine, it's been quite a trip for Coogan. If you're an American, you might know him from Tropic Thunder or the Night at the Museum movies, maybe from the more highbrow stuff like 24-Hour Party People or the Trip movies that he shot with Rob Brydon. The third film in the series, The Trip to Spain, hits American theaters next month. If you're a comedy fan, you almost certainly know him as Alan Partridge, a character who's carried through a radio show, five TV and Internet shows, and in 2013, a feature film. Partridge is a middle-aged broadcaster who knows almost nothing about anything, but has just enough polish and self-regard to get by. In the Alan Partridge movie, the radio station where Partridge works is taken over by a crazy ex-DJ. The police choose Alan to be their man on the inside. In this scene, they're prepping him to go in. Okay. Now, are you on any medication? Uh, just some cream. Uh, I've got very aggressive athlete's foot, but that's the only thing about me that is. And do you suffer from any nervous conditions such as panic attacks? <laughs> Do I look like I suffer from panic attacks? I've had one panic attack in a car wash. It was a perfect storm of no sleep, uh, no wife, and angry brushes whirring towards me. Um, by the time the giant hairdryer came on, I was in the footwell. Does the idea of weaponry trouble you? No, oh, no, I've fired several rifles. I've fun fairs and won prizes, but I've never fired one in anger uh, or at a cat. Steve Coogan, it's really great to have you on Bullseye. Welcome to the show. Thank you. We're happy to be here. Um, did you think that you were going to go into comedy when you were a kid or a teenager? Um, I, I, I wasn't very, I wasn't very good. I wasn't academically very advanced. It's not that I wasn't, st- I, I was stupid, but uh, I was kind of lacked motivation. I was always in a daydream world of uh, fantasy adventure. You know, I was kind of TV generation. You know, nineteen seventies when I grew up, I just. You know, all there was was TV, so I'd consume it avariciously. And uh, I, but I, I, and there were no VCRs, uh, so I used to repeat the TV shows I'd seen to anyone who'd listen, and uh, and became quite good at it. And you had to pay attention because there were, if, you, if you missed a detail on a TV show, you couldn't summon it up at the touch of a button as you can these days. So I. I just learned to do voices and be funny, and people would say, "Hey, you should be on TV." And I, and as time went on, I thought, "Oh, maybe that's my best shot. I'm not great at anything else. Maybe I should try and try and do that." One of the things about memorizing comedy, and it's something that I did as a kid too, is that I think sort of like memorizing poetry, it gives you this feeling for the way. A joke works. Um, did you did you find that like that that there is this relationship between you know knowing every line of Holy Grail or whatever and having a feeling of how a sentence needs to be structured in order for the punchline to punch. You certainly. Um learnt about cadence and uh, and emphasis and uh, timing and all those things from watching other people and learning and but then as you start to do it as I've been doing it for 25 years you learn the uh, the kind of the patterns that 
make a good joke or a funny moment. And they kind of go in uh, subconsciously. And you learn those patterns, and then you learn to, and the, the rules as far as they exist, and then you learn to break those rules and play with those rhythms. Uh, I think my, my partner who runs my production company once said that it's a combination, a comedy is a combination of maths and music. And I think that's right, because you need to, uh, something has to have a kind of a rhythm to it. And uh, you know that you can, and especially having done live comedy, you can refine a joke and refine it so that you know that if you delay, you, you, you pause or you delay at a certain point and then you deliver a certain line, then you can get a big, a big laugh. You have to understand to some extent the way the pattern works and then you have to find a way to break that pattern. Uh, yeah, you can, and also if you if you uh, there are little sometimes these things are things you just learn intuitively, but then you look at the stuff you've done, you you start to spot these patterns. You can you can uh, establish. There's a kind of rule of three in comedy that often works, where you you have two things that are sensible, and then one the third thing in the list is a is a stupid thing. Um, but you can have patterns you you establish, and then you break them. Uh, so you you lead the audience into accepting the pattern, and you, and you break it uh, uh, later on, or you, um, uh, you th- th- there's there's various different um, modes that you can uh, uh, operate in, and sometimes you can do something where you ride a, a truck right through, right over all those those rules, and it still works. It's still funny. You, sometimes things you don't you can sometimes you can deconstruct something and know why it's funny and then there's some things you just no idea why it's funny you can laugh and you laugh and and you don't know why you can't quite that's mostly the, the most magical stuff when you see people who've got funny bones as they say then you don't know why they're making you laugh and uh, and also there's the there's the there's the comedy of recognition where you know you can have a laugh from a good gag and you can have that kind of laugh where you shine a light on some sort of element of human truth that everybody nods and they they sort of they 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 hit their sides and they laugh out loud because they recognize something and they say oh well, he just told us something we we uh, I've only just realized to be true about humanity or about behavior and it, it, it's comedy is also about i'd say um human weaknesses our failings it's a way of dealing i think with the with the, the aspects of ourselves that are not perfect or not good or not healthy. You started your career on stage as an impressionist. And um, it, impressions are usually presented comedically. And they have, if, if uh, in the hands of a skilled impressionist, there is, you know, there's something that makes you laugh about this, the simple recognition of elements of something that we're familiar with you know, a famous person who's, you know, has a certain manner of being. Um, But I think a lot of times other kinds of comedians look down on impressionists because the lousy ones uh, don't add anything funny to that mix. Um, They don't add jokes. It is, it is a simple, you know, it's, they can, they might consider it a parlor trick. Yes. Well, I think, I think that's, I, uh, I think that's, that's right. And uh, that's something that bothered me early on. I think there is something about that. I always felt that, uh, to some extent, that impressions were a kind of a politic, that, that, that 
you look at it and it's like watching someone juggle. It can be impressive, but it doesn't mean anything. And I wanted to do comedy that meant something, and I didn't quite know what that meant, but I knew that it was more than just saying, get a load of me and how good I am at this thing I can do. <laughs> and you had uh, become very successful at doing impressions at a relatively young age. I mean, you were, yeah. on, you were on TV when you were in your early 20s. Yeah, I was on, like, national TV and these royal performances with, like, you know, Charles and Diana were there. I was 23 years old, and uh, uh, I had on my shiny suit, and I did my funny voices, and that was my, you know, it was, but it was rapidly turning into my just 15 minutes of fame, and it was useful because it is impressive. Very, You can impress someone quite quickly if you do a very accurate impersonation. I mean, I can, I can right now, if I did uh, Martin Sheen, it was kind of unusual, um, uh, he has a way of speaking where he sounds like something stuck to the roof of his mouth. And when he gets angry, he gets real hoarse. His voice gets kind of squeaky like that. But um, and, and you can establish things about the, the, I'm the president of the United States of America. And you better tell those people. Yeah. Um, so you kind of – you start to uh, learn about these, these things. And a good impersonation – a good impersonation – it is a device, but I, to me, I, I thought, oh well, I can. It's a what it, it showed me that was that I had a good ear that I could listen to things. And I'd rather, and I turned that into doing comedy characters. It's a very useful uh, tool to have in your arsenal. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Steve Coogan. His latest film, The Trip to Spain, is out in theaters next month. He's also just announced that he's working on the return of his signature character, Alan Partridge. I want to play a clip from the day today, which is an absolutely amazing, hilarious show. And this is you as Alan Partridge. And the day today was a a satire of uh, television news. It, the anchor here is Chris Morris. Uh, Alan Partridge on, you know, he's developed over the years. He's, he's filled in over the years. But on this show, he was, he was mostly a, like a what if a, a sports reporter didn't know anything about sports but knew a little bit about broadcasting, <laughs> only a little bit. And um, one of the nice things on the day today is that they often the show often kind of deconstructed the handoff between the anchor and the field correspondent. So you will hear Chris Morris's kind of hyper aggressive anchor character poking at Alan Partridge and a, a segment about uh, football or soccer, as we'd call it here. And Partridge, Alan, you're a bit of a word man, aren't you? Um, I certainly am, like words. Uh, where would we be without them? Help you when you're having a chat. Yeah, do, they, do you feel them as they come out? Yep, certainly do. What do they feel like, then? Yeah, something like that. Do long words feel different from short ones? Yeah, yeah. What about significant words? What do they feel like? Alan. What? What do significant words feel like as they come out? Do they feel different? Yes, yes. I'm Alan Partridge. Buttress is a significant yes. word, isn't it? Yeah. This is Sports Desk. Football. The Liverpool versus Tanners match ended last night with defeat for the Tanners. I visited their dressing room. The atmosphere here hangs heavy like a big smell. The smell of men together. The smell of cat's musk. Bob Marino, you missed the penalty. Why? Yeah, Alan, um, it was a bad one. It took the top of my boot. It was all over in an instant. Um, just you the... look really stupid. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't a good performance. I'm gonna. <laughs> it's. I mean, that's now 20 years old. It's still a pretty hilarious take on 
that kind of dude. Mm. What originally was the impetus for creating this character? Was it just like the lot of you were in the writer's room and they said, uh, Steve, can you come up with something for a sports guy? Yeah. Uh, it was like, there's this sports presenter. Can you do a sports presenter's voice? I don't know that much about sports. So I did what I regarded as a kind of generic sports announcer's voice. I didn't even know what, what, what that was. I thought, oh, they kind of sound like this. And... Uh, they sort of have this voice, certainly in the UK, where they are confident, uh, they're clear, they're very professional, and they'd certainly pass muster as a radio disc jockey. Uh, but actually, although they can speak well, they are actually not that intelligent underneath. And so that that's where it came from. And and as as we uh, also, it was kind of after that it became we started to ask questions about the character: where does he live? What does he do? And we started to, to develop it, but we were sort of having poking fun at the um, those kind of media anchors. It was almost like that. The great skill was that they could manage to keep talking, even when their brain had stopped functioning. Um, <laughs> silence is the worst possible offence on, especially on uh, radio. Is keep the noise coming, uh, even if there's no substance behind it. Some noise is better than nothing. That 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 being the kind of mantra of the kind of middle of the road uh, you know, DJ. I think a, a really interesting thing about Alan Partridge is that he's always been kind of middle aged and a, a little lonely and very <laughs> scared. Um, you know, like he's he blunders into any situation. It, it but it's unusual to have a character who has that quality of, you know, jumping into things that he's ill-prepared for, uh, which is a a frequent comic theme. You know, Mm -hmm. somebody thinks they can do more than they can do. Mm -hmm. Um, But also is constantly terrified throughout the entire thing. (laughs) Well, I think, yeah. I think that um, that fear is a very human trait. And what I think has given the character legs... uh, for so long and enabled it to continue is because um, there's enough uh, there's enough humanity in it. He's not just a monster or a runaway train. Uh, he's he has enough fallibility and just enough self awareness to uh, to know that he's in a bad place. <laughs> um, and. I think that makes makes people laugh at him, but also there's a certain kind of compassion they have for him. They kind of they care about what happens to him. And they also think a little part of, of Alan Partridge is everyone thinks there, but for the grace of God, go I, because we all of us have it, it meet, we meet people and we think things that we ought not to say. It would be terrible if I said this right now, and so we have those private thoughts. And then we don't, of course, we don't act on them because we have an internal editing mechanism. And with Alan, you just switch that off sometimes and have him, if you like, speak first and think afterwards, and that leads you into very funny uh, situations. I want to play another clip of Alan Partridge. This is from. Uh, one of the TV shows that my guest Steve Coogan did as Alan Partridge called I'm Alan Partridge. And he's he's had a television talk show and failed at it. He's failed down to a local radio show. And as you can hear in this, his local radio show is essentially comprised exclusively of like theme song jingles and uh, weird call-ins and prizes and just local radio nonsense. 
That was sweating lunatic Iggy Pop, part of our Tuesday night punk pack, which is climaxing at midnight with madness. This is Norfolk Nights with Alan Partridge, and we're in the middle of Super Talk. Super Talk! Brought to you by Ginster's Pasties. Tonight, we're super talking about evil dogs. We've all seen them in those uh, undesirable areas. Uh, Donald from Hemsby has emailed us to say dangerous dogs should simply have their teeth replaced with strips of rubber. I think that's an excellent idea, and I'm going to make him our email of the evening. Email of the evening. And Donald wins our top prize, which is a kind of action man military figure. It's got all kinds of features, and uh, on the box it says, uh, not suitable for children. I wouldn't take any notice of that. Uh, although my cousin did once buy a pirated tweenie from a covered market in Brondel, and it was full of soiled bandages. Anyway, time for music now. Who's this beautiful blonde man with a lovely voice? It's Annie Lennox. That was... <laughs> very enthusiastic. I've forgotten that. Um, I wonder if your relationship to Alan Partridge has changed, not just because you've spent so much time with this character. And it, it had been a while since you'd done any Alan Partridge stuff up until two or three years ago. Um, but you have spent, in a way, 20 years with this guy. But also, I think a lot of his, uh, you know, a, a lot of what drives him is about being cast adrift in middle age and as you have gone from being in your you know mid-20s to being in your mid-40s I wonder if that's made you think about him differently um well yes it's it's developed in two ways really one is that he he's the character has become more uh um, dynamic and sort of three-dimensional but also he's uh as time has gone on I've gotten more comfortable with him, and so I kind of use it as a as a conduit for all the dysfunctional thoughts and uh, ideas that I have, and I I sort of throw them into the, the the character. So he is like an alter ego, but he's sort of a way of um, dumping all my dysfunction, if you like, um, and exercising it because you can make it's uh, it's very environmentally sound. It's sort of recycling parts of your personality that are that are otherwise useless. Um, so um and i find that that that's um that as time goes on that's quite a, it's cathartic but it, it also alan has to reflect you know uh changing social mores and um you know for example originally he was he's probably close to me now because he's struggling to if you like uh, uh um embrace uh, liberal attitudes to social mores i mean i i embraced them a long time ago but alan is sort of playing catch up and it's funnier to have him try and do that than just have him some right-wing intolerant xenophobe that he's actually someone who's trying to who realizes that um you know that he ought to be nice about gay ma- gay marriage because that's that's how things are going as it were and so um so he 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 has he has changed but certainly for me as a as a person uh there's also a, a, because he's become part of the landscape for me um and I've had a difficult relationship with him insofar as uh, if it was all I did, I'd probably find it slightly like I was trapped, uh, almost like Stan Laurel, uh, you know, was trapped by his creation. Um, so it's important that I do other things. And uh, 
perversely, the more successful I am, I mean, because I, at one point in the past, I was thinking, I, I need to get rid of this character. But then, of course, I do find him funny. It's not, I've never done anything with Alan Partridge because I've been asked to. It's always because I've, I've wanted to. And when I watch it back, I see, I sort of laugh at it because I see, um, I sort of, although it's part of me, I see someone else. I see a funny character. And, it, and, and, and I can look at it the same way that uh, the public can. But, um, uh, you know, as time goes on, I find that the that I'm more likely to return to him, the more successful I am at other things because I don't feel as encumbered by him. He's not so much of an albatross. And uh, so um, so as long as I'm able to express myself in other ways, then it's always nice to return to him. Like a, rel- like a relative that um, you're very fond of, but you only want to see at Christmas and holidays. You don't want to live with them. <laughs> We have more of my conversation with Steve Coogan in a minute. He'll give his take on why some comedians are so afraid of sincerity. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. I'm Linda Holmes. And I'm Stephen Thompson. There's more stuff to watch and read these days than any one person can get to. That's why we make Pop Culture Happy Hour. Twice a week, we sort through the nonsense, share reactions, and give you the lowdown on what's worth your precious time and what's not. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We'll get back to my conversation with Steve Coogan after a break. But before we do, let's take a look at Pop Rocket. Pop Rocket, of course, Bullseye's sister show over here at Maximum Fun. Kind of like a chatty version of Bullseye. Every week on Pop Rocket, we give you a panel discussion about pop culture that is brilliant, fascinating, and very funny. Our host is Guy Branham. He's a stand-up. He hosts Talk Show the Game Show on True TV. Hey, Guy, what's popping on Pop Rocket this week? Hey, Jesse. This week we're throwing a baby shower for our very own Margaret Wappler. Woo! In, in other words, <laughs> we're going to be giving her our very best pop culture recommendations for the next generation. Sounds good. Congratulations, Margaret Wappler. Pop Rocket, get it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Steve Coogan. He and I spoke in 2014. He's probably best known to comedy fans as Alan Partridge. He's also appeared in Tropic Thunder and The Night at the Museum movies. His latest film, The Trip to Spain, comes out next month. It seems like, and I'm, um, you know, I'm I'm 32. I've just had children and stuff. um, And I'm kind of looking down the barrel at this. But it seems like one of the big things that Alan Partridge, especially in the movie, is having to deal with is the kind of disappointments in his life um, and sort of coming to terms with what's good about the positive things in his life, which I think is an experience that a lot of people um, have once they stop being young, you know, once their achievements start to be significant, but also their horizons start to narrow a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I just wonder if that's something that I, I just wonder if that's something that that you've thought about, um, and or, or even if it's one of the reasons that you're more comfortable now with this character than you were ten years ago. That you know, this is a really special thing that you've done and and can do. Yes, you do. I think that's absolutely right, and it's very, very uh, perceptive of you to say that because no one's really pointed that out. But it is the case that you start to um, uh, appreciate it for what it is, 
and know that uh, it's something that uh, that in some way adds to the sum total of human happiness, however in however small uh, a way. But it's uh, it's important. Um, also, I think because I've uh, the, the character or the way the character is rendered is the comedy comes from a place of wanting to be uh, there's a there's a generosity of spirit about the whole thing that perhaps lacked when I was younger I think you become preoccupied with being cool and edgy and hip and um, and if you like uh, smart funny cynicism uh, acerbic cynicism is very enjoyable and satisfying but as you get older you want to sort of have a little bit of a little bit more humanity about what you do and, and that's the case in, in the other work I've done but it's also has definitely crept into Alan Partridge and certainly with the, the latest writers I write with uh, Rob and Neil Gibbons they've helped flesh the character out and make him more uh, rounded so he's still a fool but he's more of a human fool and um, and uh, but underneath it all, there's a sort of a um, there's a humanity underpinning it. However awful he is, um, you 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 think he's uh, he's just a kind of a, an expression of of lots of human frailties. Let's hear one more Alan Partridge scene because I I basically I I if it was up to me, I would be more than happy to just play. Alan Partridge scenes for an hour and just call it a day because I just love listening to them. This is from the movie, which is really hilarious. And basically, Pat, the disgruntled formal, former DJ, has hostages in the radio station. Alan is the go-between. Um, and in this scene, Pat, the DJ, has literally tied a rope around Alan, and he is he has been sent out with a walkie-talkie headset to communicate with the police. So he's out the front door, but there's a literal rope tying him into the building. And there's a big crowd outside of the radio station in addition to the police. And as soon as he sees the crowd, Alan realizes that he's, um, well, in his element, I guess. He has an audience. Alan, listen, Pat works with us here. It's going to all end well. Okay, I give him my word. Yeah, just, yeah. Okay, you got to, yeah. No, you're rambling. You got to be more concise. You know, what, what do you want? You know, I want a helicopter. That's just an example, by the way. Okay, he wants a helicopter. He's actually quite angry. He's honking in my ear like a mad Irish goose. Oh, oh. We um, do, do you mind? It's not a radio roadshow. I'm trying to host a siege. Yeah. We love you, Alan. Get away. Who said that? What's it like in there? Uh. Scary, stressful, lots of shouting. A bit like being married again. <laughs> and and, and there's, a, there's a crazy person running around with a gun, so it's a lot like being married again. <laughs> and uh, when I saw a guy with a shotgun in his mouth begging for mercy, then I definitely... You're, you're ahead of me. You're ahead of me. A lot of you are. He's still got his hand on his gun. I think so, he thinks I don't know. Yeah, you. I'm looking at you. Peripheral vision, mate. Alan. It's all right. I'm not retreating. Pat's tugging me off. Alan. No, come on. Come on. We're better than that. Yeah, it's, seriously. Alan, wait. Oh, by the way, there's an extra hostage. Ah. Let's, let's tell you that. This is such a sad thing. This <laughs> <laughs> He just is so excited that anyone cares. I know. I know. It's... I know. It's, um... It's like I say. It's sort of uh, my. It's sort of my own worst nightmares, if you like, sort of turned into comedy. <laughs> I, 
I, I also I, I really loved this television series that was also transformed into a movie that you did a year or two ago called The Trip. And it's about a version of a fictional fictionalized version of you and a friend of yours and, and fellow comic from the UK named Rob Bryden going on uh, going on a trip together through the UK, eating at fancy uh, places to eat. And uh, I think your character, as I remember, is is reporting for a, a blog or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the show is essentially just conversations between the two of you. And this is one of those conversations. Um, And uh, it's about what your companion, Rob, would want for his funeral. Will will you be buried or will you be cremated? I think I would would like to be buried so that I have a headstone Mm -hmm. like Elvis. Mm -hmm. But I think that when you have a headstone and you're in a place, it puts great pressure on your family, your surviving family, to visit you. I'd be happy if you, if you, you know, I don't, I'm not happy with either. If they, if they buried you or cremated you, they would both suit me fine. Would you come to my funeral? Would you turn up, do you think? Of course I would. Of course would you? I would. Yeah. yeah if, only, if, if only to pad out the numbers, you know. You know when, you know when, um, when someone dies and they go to the funeral and they say, you know, we should have done this when he was alive. He would have loved this. What cremated him? No, you know, hearing hearing the eulogy. I thought that's what I'll say. Your funeral. We should have done this a lot when he was alive. Cremated him. Ha 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 ha. No riposte from you, because you're dead. <laughs> this whole series is, and there's a, uh, from what I understand, there's a second series on the way. Um, this whole series is this series of conversations between the two of you who are c- clearly old friends, but each of you is struggling to connect with the other and because you essentially prefer to perform. You can hear it in that scene. I mean, you can literally hear it in that scene because that's a scene where, you know, that's a scene where your character, you guys, the two of you are talking about death and your character's just excited to have a good solid bit that can't be responded to. Oh, yeah, it's just, well, it it sort of stems from, especially a lot of comic performers, is there's a certain kind of attention deficit disorder with comic performers where they can't express themselves unless they're being funny, which um, Rob has probably a little bit more than me. But it's 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 like it's like an affliction. It's like that the 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 thing that they're most most comics are scared of is having to say something sincerely because that that terrifies them. So they'd rather just keep doing jokes, and um, and of course the the way they express that is by it's it's like a fencing match. You know, you kind of constantly lobbing lobbing uh, grenades of comedy at each other, and. Um, uh, that that's really what the series uh, is, but it's also a way of looking at looking at issues, universal issues of life. I mean, the, the, it's it's a series in the UK. It's also a film. We've just done another one called the the trip to Italy, which is Rob and I going along the Amalfi Coast and visiting, um, you know, Pompeii and Naples and Rome, Capri, uh, uh, Ravello and uh, Genoa. Lots of beautiful places we visit, and explore. Um, and we talk about life, and we we we, we talk about uh, you know we we try to talk about high culture. We're supposed to be retracing the steps of the romantic poets Shelley and Byron, with a little bit of Keats thrown in. 
Um, but of course, in, in our attempts to lift ourselves up and make ourselves more cultured, we end up descending into doing impersonations of people, uh, as usual. You Now, you just described this affliction of comics in very general terms. Um, and it's very vivid in the film and, and show. Uh, and I wonder if it's something that you've struggled with yourself. Yes, uh, that's why. I mean, I suppose because you know, comedy is very enjoyable. Like I say, and and irony and uh, cynicism and and acerbic wit is very addictive. But it's ultimately not. It, it's not a, a sort of. It's kind of a band aid. It's it's not a cure, and. Um, and we can all use humor, which, which for the right thing gets us through difficult times. We can have a laugh and a joke. That's all really important. But it's um, if it's just uh, um, you need to you sort of want something more than that. And um, I've definitely wanted to sort of almost got a bit tired or world weary or sort of comedy fatigue, if you like, from just having sort of cheap. Uh, Cheap, cheap shots. Uh, even though the, the thing I do with Rob Brydon, the trip is a, is just a, a long litany of cheap shots at each other. It's also there's also kind of love beneath it. Uh, and there's a and, lot of uh, it's very lonely too. I mean, to see it, that when when your character in particular is dealing with just trying to find human connection, even with this guy who's theoretically his you know one of his best friends. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's it it is a kind. Of, I mean, they're like our. Well, we play ourselves in in the trip, but it's kind of ourselves writ large. Um, Rob isn't quite as as brainlessly, constantly entertaining and 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 wanting to do shtick as he portrays himself, and neither am I quite as depressed or lonely as as, as I depict myself. Um, but there's definitely an element of truth in that, and um, and certainly with where where I went after that in terms of writing was me wanting to do something that was sincere because it seems to me almost the most avant-garde thing you could do was talk about love and be sincere in this day and age because everyone's being smart and cool and ironic and putting things in inverted commas and being postmodern and uh, it just I felt it was um it it you know it it struck me that it was that uh, the most difficult thing for for me it was almost like a to embolden myself to be sincere without being boring or sanctimonious and and you can do that it's bullseye i'm jesse thorne i'm talking with steve coogan comedian actor and of course alan partridge we talked in 2014 i i read somewhere that when you were working with the director of philomena stephen frears that one of the things that you worked on was simply on the script was simply making it kind of plain and direct um, and it is a very you know it's a very emotional film about two people you know finding a connection and, and also finding a way to embrace either God or the universe's love and forgiveness mm-hmm. um, but it, it would have been you know it's it's a very it's a very plainly told story and it didn't you know it, that was clearly a choice. Yeah, well, I tell you, there's certain things that governed governed the way we wrote it. Is that I don't like people who are over eloquent about their about what they're experiencing, and um, 
Martin Sixsmith, the character I play in, which is a real person, but it's sort of embellished for dramatic uh, purposes. I, when I spoke, when I speak as him, he, he he represents the cynic, and he's articulate, but not about his feelings. And uh, neither is Philomena particularly uh, eloquent about her feelings. And but there's um, uh, and from Philomena being the sort of blue collar woman, and I represent the intellectual liberal, if you like. Uh, he's very verbose and very uh, articulate, but he's no, he's, if you like, less happy than this woman who speaks in more simple terms. And that was very deliberate. And I wanted the intellectual to learn from the stoic, uh, simple faith of uh, this older woman. Um, that that was important, but the one thing I rail against, which is in films that do suppose they have sentiment, there's a lot of people talking about their feelings all the time. It especially happens in a lot of American movies, and I find that a bit boring. Um, people constantly talking about you make me feel like this, I feel angry, but and deconstructing all their feelings. And you can express feeling and emotion, and it's more interesting when by what's not said sometimes, and by things being said in a few simple, well-chosen words rather than just long, long tracts of verbal diarrhea um, where people are just talking incessantly about how people make them feel. It's slightly narcissistic. And uh, I, I like the fact that there's a, a brevity, an economy of expression. And one of my favorite movies is The Straight Story, the David Lynch movie about uh, Alvin Strait, the guy who goes across America on his lawnmower. And I watched it again the other day, and I said it was very, very good thing. that I'm very glad I did because I... It was a real exercise in that script in in uh, economy of expression in a few well chosen words being having more depth and uh, and, and and more impact than uh, you know, a thousand uh, empty ones. Did you find that writing this character who is you know? Uh, Significantly based on a, a real life journalist, but also I think to some extent based on you and in, in your life experiences, um, changed your approach to and, and perspective on faith. Given that uh, yes, given yeah, that that's yeah. what l largely for folks who haven't seen it, what what Philomena yeah. is about. Yes, I mean I want it. Sort of it. it um, I think I became. It was almost like an open letter to my parents. In a way, I'm, I'm not religious. My parents are religious. I don't want to change their minds. I don't want them to change my mind. But I love them and I respect them. And so, really, it was a way of working through that conversation. So it's easier for me to make a movie about it than to have an actual conversation with them. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's. Um, so really, it to me it was. Um, it it's it definitely changed me into, but it was important that you know that in the character because a lot of myself is in that character although it is martin a lot of my own feelings about faith is i wanted to recognize although i am a uh i sort of suppose an intellectual who who uh, is not religious i also understand i can have the duality of knowing that i can learn things from uh, people like my parents who are good people who lead, lead, lead unremarkable but diligent lives um, which are governed by their faith and um, I think you can have both those things uh, um, but certainly it made me less conceited about my own agnosticism or atheism I, I, I veer between atheism and agnosticism but um, I think you can 
you can have you can adhere to that and still uh, respect people of faith and know that you can learn from them and that also people of faith can learn from those people who are uh, agnostic because um the, the the sort of it gets a bad rap pe- people who or certainly atheism is a horrible word atheism I mean, it, it, it you can you can still uh, Douglas Adams said of uh, religion that it's enough to admire the beauty of the garden without having to believe that fairies live at the end of it and I feel that um, that you can uh, find as much of uh, you know affirmation of, of of life and learn about humanity from Shakespeare or great literature or great art as much as you can from the Bible, uh, arguably more. Um, but that's not to diminish the fact that uh, that uh, there are there are lessons we can learn from, you know, that from from the Gospels and uh, Jesus Christ. And I say that as someone who's not religious. Well, Steve, we are plumb out of time, um, but I I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to be on the show. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Steve Coogan, fans of comedy who haven't watched Alan Partridge, boy, are you lucky. Uh, Actually, I think the Alan Partridge movie is still hanging around on Netflix. It is as good an introduction as any. It is real funny. He's bringing back Alan Partridge, too, in case you haven't heard. He just made that announcement on TV in the U.K. And by the way, make sure to check out his new movie, too. It's called The Trip to Spain. It's the third in his series of movies called The Trip. Um, They're all wonderful. It's in theaters August 11th. Every week we like to close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. So I was in Washington, D.C. recently having some meetings. I should say some meetings at NPR, not like meetings with the president. That sounded kind of weird when I said it. Anyway, we had an hour-long break, so some friends and I walked over to the National Postal Museum. Now, my mom's from D.C., so I spent a lot of time there growing up, but I, I'd never been. I mean, there are a lot of museums in our nation's capital, and I guess I had never prioritized the stamp museum. Anyway, it turns out it's pretty cool. They have that stamp with the upside-down biplane that's worth a bajillion dollars. There's an exhibit about how cool mail trucks are. Turns out they're pretty cool. Um, suspended from the ceiling, there's a big sort of Spirit of St. Louis-looking mail plane with a big long wooden hook that scooped up mail bags in rural areas. There's a thing about postal inspectors and the Unabomber. Oh, and also, also there is a hundred-year-old taxidermied dog named Oni. Here's the deal about Oni. One night in 1888, a little terrier dog wandered into the back door of a post office in Albany, New York. It was raining outside. It was nighttime. He was looking for a dry place to sleep. The next morning, the clerk found him curled up on a bag of mail. He got the name Oni after the clerk who found him, whose name was Owen. And the clerk convinced his boss to let the dog live at the post office and sleep on the mailbags. Now, the mailbags traveled, so pretty soon, Oni started to travel. He'd fall asleep on a mailbag, ride the rails with it, guarding the mail, keeping the mailman company. The folks in Albany were worried he'd get lost, so they made him a tag that said, Oni, Post Office, Albany, New York. As he traveled, the post offices he visited gave him tags, too. Pretty soon they were too heavy for his collar, and he got a sort of harness to hold them all. Eventually, they say he had a thousand of them, though he didn't wear them all every day. With his tag harness on, 
He sort of looked like a battle horse wearing plate armor, but the little dog version of that. He even, and maybe this is apocryphal, but it's too good not to share, he even got a dog passport from the Emperor of Japan. He had a full life. He was put down in 1897 after 10 years on the rails and 143,000 miles traveled. Hell of a dog. One of the postal clerks wrote this verse about him. Oni is a tramp, as you can plainly see. Only treat him kindly and take him long with ye. When Oni died, postal workers demanded that he be preserved and displayed at the postal headquarters as a reminder not just of their mascot, but of the regular people who worked alongside him and fed him and took care of him, all these clerks and all these post offices, and all the bosses, even, who said it was okay for a dog to ride on the mail train. So now he sits, a hundred and some years later, on the main floor of this contemporary museum. Among the screens and the learning tools and the interactive touchscreen displays, a slightly mangy terrier mutt with a strange coat made out of postal badges. And I'm glad he's there, because for all the electronic post boxes and international stamp maps, this taxidermied dog is what stuck with me about my trip. He's an odd, sort of lovely reminder of the past. A great story, and a brave, charming little pup. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. Wikipedia declared it the Champs-Élysées of Los Angeles. So, there's no more trusted source than that. The matter has been settled. Except for that I probably mispronounced that in some way. Please don't email me regarding my French pronunciation. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones, our producer, Kevin Ferguson... He had help from Christian Duenas. Production fellows at MaximumFun.org are Kara Hart and Nick Liao. This week, Kevin Ferguson recommends that you search on uh, YouTube for Exuma. He's a Bahamanian folk rock guy. Uh, I listened to a song of his that Kevin sent me called Exuma the Obia Man. Uh, it is amazing. Yeah, so do that. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme music recorded by the Go Team provided to us by Memphis Industries Records and the Go Team. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And while you are at it, check out the Bullseye YouTube page. We've got all of this week's interviews and segments there for you to listen, share, and comment on. Actually, there is some very exciting uh, action going on in that comment section uh, on the outshot that I did earlier this month about Prince and his album Sign of the Times. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 